when Jesus calls his people sheep, from a human standpoint, that's not terribly flattering. But if you think of the world as so complex that it is literally beyond our reach to understand it, then all we need to know is the shepherd's voice. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got Tracy. Good morning. And we've got Eric. Good morning. We've got Karen. Hey. There she is. I knew she was there. Hey, kind of a kind of a big week in my household. I now have in my household a college graduate slash high school graduate. My my son has officially graduated high school, and it's kind of funny because he actually graduated college with his associate's degree a, a week before he graduated from high school. So that's a kind of a of an odd uh, little turn of events, but. It's it's not like he was unique. That's just the way his school works. So, um, but that's kind of a cool thing going on in my household. And Eric, you had some good news this week too, didn't you? Oh, I don't know when I shared it, but yeah, I did get licensed uh, as a real estate agent this week. Yeah. So that's a plus. It is a thing. I worked a long time for that. Yeah. So it's cool to see. It's cool to see things coming to fruition. And uh, yeah, it's 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 nice to have the. The, the 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 ups in our lives and uh, being able to uh, tick those off on our uh, I guess we don't really tick them off we uh, we just take note of them that's a, that's a better way to put that all right well we are um, getting into our discussion today with the book of first Kings and we are in chapter 10 now we've spent the last mm, gosh three weeks or so. Maybe it's more than that. We kind of stepped outside of the narrative side of things, the story. You know, we're we've been following for a long time the story and the history of the of Israel. And this week we got, or the last couple of weeks, it was more of um, a glimpse into the mindset of King Solomon with the Book of Ecclesiastes and the Book of the Song of Solomon. So those were those were some different chapters to look at, but now we're going to get back into some of the history of what was going on. Now, if we think back and remember that King Solomon had been spending time raising up the kingdom of of um, Israel after King David had King David had kind of played on the war side of things, and now King Solomon had been playing more on the building side of things. And so Israel has gotten really established as a powerhouse and people are curious. It's, you know, it's, it's sitting right in a major crossroads of, of what was known as the civilized world at the time. And, uh, people are starting to learn a bit about King Solomon's reign. I won't say conquest because we don't really get a lot of stories about uh, King Solomon fighting wars at all. So he's uh, he's built the temple. He's built himself a nice big house. He's built a nice big house for his wife. And so he's got this great kingdom that's kind of just sitting there for everybody to see. And and uh, I don't know, I'll say I'll say it's kind of there showing off, even though I don't really see that uh, Solomon. It's not it's not like he seems to take very much of a prideful tack on anything here, but he definitely has done a good job of making the kingdom into something great. He doesn't in uh, 1 Kings 10. Not the well, first part of it anyways. He yeah. he turns a hard 
corner. We don't know how hard it was or how gradual it was exactly, but uh, mm-hmm. he, he does make a turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in First Kings 10, we find that the Queen of Sheba has has heard of what's going on with Solomon and Israel, and she wants to come up and see if this is true. Now, this is significant because Sheba, if we look at our map, in our Bible app map that we like to use here on the podcast, Sheba uh, is in Ethiopia. And that is, judging by my little thumbs on the on the map, looks like it's about 1,500 miles away. So that's quite a ways for a word of mouth type of uh, 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 reputation to make its way. You know, this is how I looked at it. When I was starting, you know, my notes when I was going through this, to me, what this opened up is this was now the world. Mm-hmm. It was outside of the kingdom. It was outside of Israel and, you know, and building that foundation, using his knowledge to solidify, you know, what was going on, you know, as far as government, as far as people, as far as commerce and how he was dealing with his own country. Now the world came knocking. And to me, this is kind of when you had um, one of those, how can I say this, that now it was looking at where he could have chose God or he could have chose the world. And I think he got caught up here just a little bit, which I think is understandable with self. That's just kind of the bottom line. This is where the self kind of, to me, kind of got, got going at this point. Because the world came knocking. Claim, um, acclaim, glory, people were seeking him out, people were praising him, and I think this is where, to me, I, I felt that this was where he started to kind of have a change of heart. Yeah, th- this, is, this is what was supposed to happen. He was, not, not the change of heart part, but that the, the world was, in fact, supposed to come knocking. This this part right here where the Queen of Sheba comes and she comes a long ways and she spends a lot of time on the tour and asks a lot, a lot of questions and says this had to be too good to be true. But I got here and it's even more true than 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 the rumors were. It's amazing. And you listen to what she says in First uh, Kings 10, 9. She said, blessed be the Lord your God. She sees all these things and she blesses God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He made you king that you may execute um, justice and righteousness. Now, quick flashback to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. See, this is is God talking, or Moses sharing, what the purpose of the commandments is. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord God commanded me, that you should keep, keep them and do them in the land you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to the Lord our God as is to us whenever we call on him? That was the purpose. They were supposed to have these commands of God that separated them from the heathen nations around them, they were to be blessed, and people were to say, wow, what is it you've got going on that is so awesome? And show up and ask, and then the glory would be given to God. And here in the first part of First Kings, that's exactly what happens. And she goes back 
essentially as a missionary into Ethiopia, and Ethiopia has a rich Christian history that a lot of the rest of the continent does not have. Yeah, she she comes in. She's kind of got her own display of wealth going on there. Oh, yeah. She's got, uh, she brings gifts. She's got her, you know, she's bringing gold and stones and spices and, and it said wood from Ophir, which was interesting because that's all the way in India, which was about 4,000 miles away. So, I mean, that's quite, uh, quite the gift to be bringing in at that time because, um, that wouldn't have been easy. And, um, Solomon uses that wood, it says to make steps for the temple of the king's house, for the temple and the king's house. And he gives gifts to the queen and it says much more than she had brought. So, uh, we really have, we really have Israel set up as quite the, hmm, quite the kingdom to be able to just kind of be generous to other, other leaders as they come in and try to, yeah. they, they kind of try to try to, to show their wealth and, and show, Hey, we're, you know, we're contenders here too. And, and Solomon's like, yeah, that's, that's cute. He's just, yeah, yeah he's just, he's got quite a bit here and, you know, like you were saying, Tracy, you know, this is kind of the world coming in and you can you can sort of read between lines. At least I do. I kind of read between the lines here that Solomon does definitely have a certain amount of pride for his kingdom. And he's not hesitant to show it off when somebody comes to take a look. Yeah, it's, and, there's a couple of things to that. In verse 21, it said silver was not considered anything in yeah. the day of Solomon. So you got that going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, and just real quick, can, can you can we name the the uh, the temples real quick in in Israel history? Where did we start? Well, there's Solomon's temple. Okay, there's one. What's another temple? Um, well, then of course there's um, well that one gets destroyed. I know there's Herod's temple. Okay, so there's two. I know there's a third one in there, but my mind is there's actually four. We've okay. got the one that was the uh, the one that happens in Exodus. What do we call that one? Oh, okay, the tabernacle, <laughs> sanctuary. Uh-huh. Sure, okay. sanctuary or the there's, tabernacle. There's the one that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt. What do you call that one? Most typically, it's called the Second Temple. Mm-hmm. Is it interesting that only two of those have names attached to a person? You have Herod, who built it for his own glory. And then you have Solomon's temple. It's right. interesting how hmm. it's not Moses's temple. I've never heard it, that tabernacle in the wilderness called Moses's temple. <laughs> we've, yeah. What we've got is a subtle thing going on here. And then we get down to some other things. But I just, there's a shift. It's subtle, but it's real. And we see its results. We read some of that as we read Ecclesiastes, where Solomon said, look, I tried everything. I did everything. And it just didn't, it didn't add up to satisfaction and, and uh, rest for the soul. Because I think at that point, you know, you're looking at it and he has everything. Yeah. There is nothing worldly like we had went through that can can quench that at that point because he's he's seen it all he's done it all and i think too going back to just the queen of sheba in the world that we often forget that 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 was a large place of commerce too and wealth was 
basically like they called the land of Kush, where you were still the Egyptian kind of area, Ethiopia area, the trade routes. That was where a lot of the money was still. And even when Israel had come out of Egypt, that was a place, that was a big deal. And I still think they, while they were probably on the decline at that point, as far as Egypt goes, that was still one of the major power players in in the whole circumstance because his first marriage was to who? Egyptian princess. Egyptian princess, where even still the pharaoh in Egypt still sent money, still built things for them. And it was like, so that it, this was a big deal. It was showing that now... You know, Israel was on the world stage, and and this is, to, just like Eric was saying a little bit, this was a test. This was one of the tests. When you have everything, where is your allegiance? Yes. Mm-hmm. And we see some of these things. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth. In 10.23, the Solomon excelled in all things of the earth in riches and wisdom, and the whole earth sought his presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God put into his mind. And that was what was supposed to be happening. So we see some interesting things. Solomon starts importing um, horses and chariots. We we talked about this a little bit before, but he brings in a lot of horsemen and uh, 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which sounds like a lot. But in our reading today, as we finish 1 Kings 10 to 14, that is not the numbers, biggest number of horsemen and chariots we're going to run across. And here's kind of what starts to happen is in Psalms 27, there is this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When we see Israel trusting in horses and chariots, then we got a problem. You know, Isaiah 31, which is later. This happens. Isaiah happens later in history, but this is a habit people have. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots. And we have our modern day equivalent. People, you know, have their like, oh, I got this to lean on, fill in the blank, you know, rich relative, you know, I know somebody in power. I've got a a bunker in my backyard. I've got a fortress in the mountains, whatever. We've got our own way of big bank account. We've got our own things that we are tempted to lean on that are not God. Yep. Right. Well, and the wealth increases and when you read through the, the wealth it's just fascinating just exactly i mean how much wealth i mean we're talking it's mind-blowing oh it's mind-blowing i mean they talk about okay it's a 666 talents of gold every year that's besides what came in from merchants traders kings of arabia governors uh i mean they got so much they're starting to use it to decorate the the, the buildings it sounds like his throne is overlaid with gold. This has been a long time coming, though. This isn't just this, something that happened overnight. David was accumulating this as well. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, so I think this, you know, all kind of played into it where, you know, it was building to this this crescendo here where they were having to choose, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and they were accumulating this. And I think with that, the arrogance gets going, the self-confidence gets going. And then self creeps in. And I think, you know, the devil's best foothold is, hey, if everything's running good and you've got tons of money and you're in want of nothing, then what? Which sounds remarkably like the book of Revelation in the church of Laodicea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and and 
And that's that was the parallel I was going to draw was, you know, here we are living in the last days of the Christian church. And that's that's this whole I mean, I am rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. And God's response to that is, you know, I, you know, I, I would rather that you have good character and faith in me and endurance and, you know, all of these things. And then I don't mean to, the only other thing, as I was reading through this, I thought several times, like, I don't mean to put my faith in chariots, but how do I get somebody to bring me 120 talents of gold as a gift? Like, how how do I get this to happen? I just, <laughs> I don't even know. I think first you have to marry an Egyptian princess. No, that was the Queen of oh. Sheba. That's what the Queen of Sheba brought him for a present. And by the way, his throne about killed me. So oh, yeah. I think it was... It was like it was made out of wood and then it's overlaid with ivory and then the ivory is overlaid with gold. I was like, oh, how ostentatious can you get? <laughs> right. I want to see. But then, but then think of this. Where do we see that in the past? Where do we see this kind of wealth and this kind of display in the past? Probably Egypt. Egypt did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so once again, so. You know, not not trying to pattern yourself after the world, right. but why right. do you have to do that? Yeah. It, it's literally, and like we said, it's a chair. Yeah. yeah. Why do you have to adorn it so much? But the rest of the world was doing that. Yeah. So this is a this is a universal problem, and this goes on all the way down through the time of Christ, and as, as uh, Karen pointed out, beyond because shows up in Revelation. There's an interesting story in Mark 10. Uh, there's the story of the rich young man. This is not a parable. It's an actual story. A guy comes up and has a conversation with Jesus and says, you know, what do I need to do? And Jesus essentially says, you need to follow me. But in order to do that, you need to get rid of the things that you have. He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I think it was the follow me part that he really needed to do, but he needed to take these other steps first. He, Jesus didn't say that to all his other disciples, but he did say that to this one. And then it goes down to this. This is Mark 10, 23. Jesus is speaking. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples are like, what? This is where the, it's easier for a camel to go through. I have a needle, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then the disciples just say, well, who can be saved? And here's a quote we hear a lot, but we take it way out of context. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, uh, for all things are possible with God. We just quote the last thing. All things are possible with God. Well, what's that in reference to? It's in reference to somebody with wealth being saved. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't often kind of keep the context with that. We think, I'm going to win this marathon because for all things are possible with God. Oh, all right, sure, that's a, you can have that on a T-shirt. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, hey, if you have wealth, it's going to be hard. And the disciples think impossible, and Jesus reminds them that nothing is impossible with God. But this is a problem, and it's just what Tracy and Karen have both said, is it's this idea that I've got it and I've got it covered. It's, it's kind of a, okay, watch me. And as soon as we do that, there's trouble. Mm -hmm. But isn't that the pitfall even to today? Oh, we yes. gave ourselves off of wealth. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, and we look at okay, it. Okay, I would, I would take a little bit different angle on that. Wealth, okay, sure. I would say more what Eric was saying before. It's I, would, I think it's more self-sufficiency in whatever form that takes with us. Sure, whatever you have handy. Which, which yeah. tends to be money. 
in monetary sure, here, value. Because, yes, here in know, America, like, that tends to be money. You know, just like we said, what, a minute ago, hey, I wish somebody would give me some shekels of gold. <laughs> For what? I just, I would even take one talent. I just want to look at it. It's pretty. <laughs> you know, that's, that's our gauge, even in, to this day. And it has been, you know... From the beginning of time, what can we accumulate? And, you know, is that the gauge of wealth? Hey, I have 20 camels or this many head of sheep and flocks. And, you know, that's what we go for. And when we get that and we obtain that, then we usually have problems. But, you know, we can look in the Bible. There's been a few people that have been able to handle it. But it's very difficult, just like Eric was saying. Mm-hmm. It sets you up for self-reliancy and and that I don't need anything, and then self creeps in. Yeah. Or what takes. What do you guys over. think the um? What do you guys think the root of root of sin is? Other than other than Satan and his you know uh, stupid distracting lies and whatever. What do you think the root of sin is like within ourselves? Ourselves. Selfishness. Self. Yeah, self. Yeah. Any way that any way that blossoms. Yeah. So like when I was reading the story of Solomon and like, you know, he's accumulating this and accumulating that, like he starts off, God says to him, what do you want? What do you want? When he's a new shiny young king and he says, give me wisdom. Mm -hmm. And God says, you know what? Because you asked for wisdom, right? Because your priorities and your intentions were in the right place. I'm gonna give you wisdom. I'm gonna give you all this other stuff too. Mm -hmm. And then once he gets that, all the other stuff, and for him, we've, you know, we've kind of iterated repeatedly that there's, he, he had a, an issue with getting distracted by women. In fact, there was one place Eric use, uh, he, Eric draws out, has drawn out several times over the time I've known him, this kind of this idea of holding fast to someone or something. And it even says in, in here that Solomon held fast to his foreign wives, even though they were specifically the groups of people that God had said, do not intermarry with them. And yep. he knew that and he held fast to them anyway. Like yep. he didn't just marry them. He held fast to them. Like that's, yep. whoa. But, but isn't, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't or can't wisdom be the springboard to everything else? Again, you have that knowledge, you have that education. Doesn't that open a lot of other avenues for self and the potential of wealth? Oh, sure. sure. It's yeah. it's it's like any amazing talent. I mean, and on this podcast, you guys are all talented in different ways. And anytime we're given a talent, anytime we're given something good, the Satan shows up to get us to use it in a bad way. Every single time. There's just no exceptions to that because, uh, you know, he's looking to get us, you know, off track. And Israel was obviously becoming a magnet for people to show up and say, wow, what's going on here? And they give glory to God, which was what was supposed to happen. And I think this is really amazing. This is really good. And so, of course, Satan's like, all right, where's Solomon's weak spots here? Right. Well, Karen gave a spoiler here. It's in First Kings 11. It's the very beginning. If you're talking about Solomon collecting things, uh, women was one of them. He had, okay, so literally it's First Kings 11, three, 700 wives were princesses and 300 concubines. Like he couldn't even know their names. He's like, oh, hey, you in the red over here. Uh, yeah. No, not, not you. The other one. It's like, I mean, can you imagine? It's ridiculous. 
And so the problem with this was, is that he had been told specifically, and this is a quote in First mm-hmm. Kings, what Karen had just kind of sounded like Karen just said it, but she's actually quoting here a First Kings 2, that they had been told, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods, end quote. They'd been told this centuries earlier. And this is, in fact, exactly what happens. I mean, you're just two verses later, and it's like, his wives turned his heart after other gods. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I look at it, like, intellectually, and I think, too, how do you gain land and spread your kingdom all over? You build alliances through marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that, you know, maybe he overthought himself once again, you know, and, and saw that. But then, too, I look at just when the Queen of Sheba came, and this was another thing, and it's kind of a spoiler alert, you know, a little bit of head before we get there. But, you know, he did kind of walk around with that haughtiness of, look what I have. And that comes up, that sets the tone for what other kings are going to do in the future that gets them in trouble. Where they could give all the glory to God, they tend to show look what I've accomplished or what, look what I have only to set that up for say like Babylon to come in and go, that's exactly what we'll take from you. Yeah. So um, that, that uh, reference that you just read, Eric, about you must not intermarry with these groups, blah, blah, blah. That's actually quoted at the beginning of chapter 11 and that's followed by nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them, to these women in love. So chapter 11 actually starts off with that. He loved many foreign women besides his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. These people and these people are these people. And it specifically says they were from nations which the Lord had told the Israelites. And then it quotes that old reference. And it says, nevertheless, he held fast to them in love. So I guess what I was getting at is if the root of sin is selfishness, so Solomon, he comes in as a shiny new king. All of his priorities are in the right place. He wants to honor God. He wants to give honor to his father by following in his footsteps as a man of God. He, you know, this and this and this. And then when the blessings come, look how generous God is. Look how generous God is when Solomon's priorities in the right place. He's like, yes, I will give you all of the things that you asked for so that you can serve me and lead my people. And I will also drown you in all of the things you didn't ask for. And yet, as soon as Solomon receives those blessings, he's distracted by them and stops looking high enough to see where they came from. He starts focusing on the blessings rather than the blessor and goes lukewarm, essentially. But isn't that kind of like, and I only, I thought of this, like getting a new job, though. You know, you say you, you graduate, you get your certificates, you get your licenses, and you're super motivated to get into that job. And all Oh my gosh, I want to do that. Self. <laughs> all you can do is strive to prove yourself that you belong and that you, you know, you're going to do the best you can do and you put forth the best effort and you're humble because you want to learn everything. And then once you feel like you have, that motivation goes away. And you don't strive like you used to. 
that's how I kind of looked at at Solomon's how Solomon started and where he finished. You know, and just to jump ahead a little bit too, you know, he does have another change of heart where he kind of realizes what's gone on and how he needs to get back. And I think that's life. Well, and yeah, the exact thing happens that we were told was that would happen with all these wives. Solomon starts turning his heart away from God and towards other gods to the point where they start building what they call high places for uh, there's a couple of of other gods specifically spelled out here. I think it's pronounced uh, Chemosh or Chemosh of Moab. And Molech of Ammon. And I don't know anything about that first one, Chemosh. But Molech, I mean, we've talked about Molech. And Molech was, I mean, that was awful. This is the one, Eric, I think you were saying people would put their children, they basically almost burned their children to death. uh, They would, literally. Yeah. One of their gods was a big metal thing. They would make it a furnace inside the god. And then this had his hands out, and this, these would heat up, superheat, and they would lay their live children, their babies, in their hands and basically fry them uh, to mm-hmm. death as a sacrifice to these gods. And Solomon did this. Yeah, so, yeah. So Solomon starts doing this, and this is where, this is where you start thinking, this was the wisest guy ever, you know? But uh, you can see that, that things, they, they, they started going bad when he started doing what God told him not to do. And because he's doing this, God, he actually, God actually comes to Solomon twice to warn him against doing this. And Solomon persists in it. And so God comes to him finally. He says, uh, says, I'm going to, I'm going to take it away from you. Says, um, says, how did, how's how, something like he's going to take away all but one tribe, it said, in uh, verses 11 through 13, it says, for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So he's going to get to keep, or at least the, the house of David there will get to keep a little bit just because of the promise that God had made to David. Uh, but essentially, the kingdom of Israel is going to be taken away. Yeah, all those all those blessings that God gave him back at the beginning, those were conditional. You know, if you will serve me and if you will do these things, I will establish your name on the throne of Israel forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see some conditional things here. They get a prophecy that the kingdom's going to be torn away, and we get the idea that um, Jeroboam knows that it's going to be. Well, Jeroboam does know it's going to be him because the prophet comes and says, "You're going to get ten of the kingdom, ten of the tribes. You're going to get." half of this whole thing. And then the prophet gives Jeroboam, essentially, this is in uh, chapter 11, verses 38, or verse 38, the same talk that basically all the other things, there's if, then, if, then, if, then, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then this. And Jeroboam listens to all these things. Solomon gets wind of this whole thing, and uh, Jeroboam scoots out of town and moves to Egypt during Solomon's life. Mm-hmm. We got this set up, and this is a really, really, this is the prophecy of the split of Israel. Now, we're only three kings into the, into the kingdom of Israel. And right now, the kingdom of Israel is all 12 tribes. That only lasts for three kings. Yeah, uh, Solomon starts to gain some adversaries and yeah one of them ends up being this jeroboam solomon did reign for 40 years though so that's not for nothing 
and he was buried in Jerusalem, but then his son Rehoboam takes the throne. There's almost immediately a revolt against Rehoboam, but it's because Rehoboam is kind of an idiot. <laughs> I think. I mean, to me, he's kind of an idiot. He's, uh, they, the, the elders, they come, this assembly comes to Rehoboam, and, they're, and they're, the, the basic gist of what they say is, you know what, Solomon really worked us hard. And, well, that's, you know, you think back and say, okay, yeah, but he also built an amazing kingdom for you guys to live in. But he really worked us hard, and we want to know if you're going to kind of relax things for us a little bit. But that being said, not to interrupt you, but when they were choosing and wanted a king so badly, they Mm -hmm. they were told that was going to happen. Exactly. They said, Mm -hmm. he said, he will take things from you. He will take everything from you. Your children, your land, the best of your food. And what did he say? Don't complain about it when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly not even two kings later. You know, like Eric was saying, we're only three kings deep. But two kings later, that's what they're doing. Yeah. And we have to we have to we have to kind of aim some of this back to say we don't we don't have a lot said about Solomon and how he ran things politically um, except that he was really, really rich. But here in, in 1 Kings 12, we kind of find out how. He really taxed his own citizens pretty hard because the first thing they do when they show up is they say, you know, you're not going to be like your dad, are you? Because that really stunk. That was rough. We, that was so hard for us. We, don't, we do not want this to continue. So what's it going to be, Rehoboam? And he's like, mm, I don't know. Let me think about it for three days, and I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. And here we see the kind of house he was brought up in and the kind of values he had, which were not that of his grandfather, David, or his father, Solomon. He just right out of the gate, he makes what looks like just an incredibly um, naive um, and selfish decision. And it results in exactly what was prophesied. The, the kingdom splits. There's something to be said for having godly friends if you're going to go to them and ask for advice like this. Yeah, yeah. He he initially goes to the elders and asks them their advice. It's like, okay, good move there, Rehoboam. Ask some people with some with some experience what's going on, and they advise. You know what? Just talk talk well to them. That's basically all they say. They say, speak good words to the people, and they will be your servants forever. So it's basically, it's. I mean, he. They, I, I didn't even get from that that they're saying, yeah, let's uh, you should lower taxes. We should we should relax, you know, all the the work that we've got going on. They don't even say that. Basically, it's like they're just saying, just speak well to them and they'll serve you forever. I think we've talked in the past about how in in the kingdom of God, the power triangle is inverted And so the servants are the ones at the quote-unquote top. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's what these guys, that's what these elders say to him. He says, so, you know, I've got three days, and how shall I answer these people? And the elders reply, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them, give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So like that that humble approach where like I'm here to work for you. I am your government. In other words, I am here to work for you. 
You know, that's that's a different thing than I am your government. I am over you. You have to produce this minimum bottom line or things are not going to go well for you. That's a completely different attitude from a government. And his I mean, his elders are dead on. Like if you will be a servant to these people, they will always be your servants. And Mm -hmm. he just doesn't do it. Right. No, he immediately decides to go to his friends who are going to stroke his ego and they tell him, no, you should tell them that you're going to keep a heavy hand on them. And not only how do they put it, something like um, your father's uh, gosh, darn it. How do they put it? My, my my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. It's like you thought he was tough. Wait till you see me. Yeah. And, my, yeah. you know, my father used whips and I'm going to use uh, scourges or as some translations use it scorpions but so i'm going to be even harder on you than my father was because you know what i'm in charge and what i say is going to go and you guys are just going to have to suck it up and this does not go well with the people they immediately reject him it says they how to put it they all went back to their own tents and the way i took it is they all just went this ain't my king you know not my king heard that for the last and you know what that's several. what i was waiting for and it was like i was i'm almost reading this almost like biting my tongue but this is almost gives us uh i don't know if it's a blueprint or what i don't think it's something we should necessarily follow but it gives us a little insight of politics mm-hmm. yeah the more things change the more they stay the same yes and you know what if you you know, when they were talking, it was like, I almost felt like they were saying, you know what, if you will speak to them sweetly, they will never know that you're giving them diabetes. Or you could take it another way, or you could just come down on them like a dictator. It's like, okay, so th- these are the couple ways of showing you how to rule and how not to rule. And he just chose poorly. Mm-hmm. So the story goes like this, the narrative, the history, is that um, in First Kings twelve nineteen. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. That's what the author wrote. Now, here's the political, how it splits out. Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, that's verse 21, are one kingdom. That's the southern kingdom, a.k.a. uh, Judah. And then we have the northern kingdom, which is interesting because there's actually one tribe south of them, that becomes the northern kingdom or... uh, sometimes called Israel. It gets a little confusing because they're both Israel, but they 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 kind of go into captivity at different times. The northern kingdom goes in first. There are some other people that resettle in there with them, and then when some of the uh, ten tribes come back and settle, they kind of settle in with the um, people who were basically their political replacements that were moved in by the Babylonians, and they adopt some of their... Um, their religious views and they're they're not the same as Judah and they later are the Samaritans that we see show up and the, the Jews in Jesus time are like, yeah, you guys are only kind of like half Jewish. You're not really you you're that's worse than just the people who are totally ignorant because you ought to know better. And so this is where this stuff starts. It splits out here and Jeroboam is the leader of the northern kingdoms. And Israel and Solomon is going to go to battle against them. He goes back and says, fine, then I'm going to get all my uh, people together and we're going to do battle against you so that you don't split off and we don't have two kingdoms here. And God sends a prophet and says, no, 
you're not going to fight against your brothers. That's not a thing you're going to do. Go home. And in an interesting thing, a good thing, they listen. They listen to God's prophet and say, okay, well, we won't do it then. And they go home. Yeah, it's interesting because Jeroboam was kind of handpicked by God to take this role of taking those 10 tribes. Yeah. Um, but we see that he quickly uh, he quickly makes some bad decisions, too. But, yeah, uh, so um, in the meantime, the priests and the Levites, they've all come back to Jerusalem. We find this in Second Chronicles 11. Yeah. Uh, so so it this it, this makes us such an interesting for the longest time, even still, I still get a little confused by this whole thing because Jerusalem is still supposed to be the center of worship. That's where the temple is. That's yeah. where the sacrifices are supposed to be made. So everybody in that northern king kingdom of Israel is still supposed to be coming to Jerusalem for worship. Yes. Um, but uh, Jeroboam, he decides, no, that's going to be too hard for everybody. Uh, so I know I'm going to make a couple of golden calves guy doesn't know his history or he doesn't pay attention to his history. Well, he, a couple of... he just came back from Egypt. He knew exactly well, where these things were coming from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he makes a couple of golden calves and oh man, here's, he says, here are your gods, which brought you from the land of Egypt. I guess, I guess Aaron said basically that same thing though, didn't he? Yeah. Back, back in the day. But Jeroboam is doubling down because he's got two calves, not just one. And uh, and he builds these build shrines. He appoints non-Levite priests, creates a feast. It says on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like Judah, and but it also says that he had devised this in his own heart. So yep. he just sort of starts creating a new religion for Israel, and the people up there basically go for it. Not yeah. everybody, not everybody, because we did read in Second Chronicles eleven that. The people who were loyal to God still went to Jerusalem for their sacrifices. But it sounds like the vast majority of Israel went this way with this new with this new religion. But how, how do you I, I couldn't fathom that that, OK, he just built this up out of nowhere. You know, couple couple idols. You have the temple there that fire came out of the sky. It's still there. It yeah. was a monument. It was one of the wonders of the world at the time. And and all the blessings that they had, and they still succumbed to this. Yeah. Yeah. I mm. this is a this is a really, really, really important and timely thing. Because the reason why Jeroboam did this is that he he felt like, well, shoot. If we've split off the kingdoms, but my subjects go as tourists to the other kingdom to do their worship and so on, you know, maybe they're just going to stay. And so I don't want to lose political power here. This is politics. This is straight up politics. Religion is just the veneer he puts over the politics. I don't want to lose my subjects. I don't want my kingdom to get reunited with the other kingdom because I want to stay king. Well, how do I stay in power? I give them something that's right here that keeps them right in my area. So I'll make all this stuff up. I'll make it convenient for them because, hey, you know what? Why would you go all the way to Jerusalem? You could just go right here. And we have a better, we have a picture. Like in Jerusalem, you're like, you don't even get to see God here. Hey, look, looks like, looks like a calf, right? And you get to do all the things. And hey, you're not going to miss the holidays. We're going to make up some new holidays. And so he makes all this stuff up as 
one of you all said, you know, just basically out of his own heart. Well, the text actually says that. That's the last uh, verse in First Kings 12, that he devised them from his own heart, and he instituted a feast. And so he does all of this to keep his political power. And not everyone is okay with that. Some are like, mm, sure, good enough. But as Matt said in Chronicles uh, 12, I believe it is, People who say, no, our allegiance is actually to God over politics. That's interesting. That shows up again in Revelation. Um, they say, we're out of here. We are going to leave. And there is a point where God's people say, mm, nope, not my, not, my, uh, not my thing anymore. Not, not my, not my uh, posse. And not literally, <laughs> in this case, you know, not my tribe. And mm -hmm. so they leave. A lot of the Levites leave, and the faithful to God leave, and it says that this strengthened Rehoboam's kingdom for a while. I think it was three years, and Rehoboam kind of had a wake-up call when he saw the kingdom split, and he was like, okay, God, I'm sorry, I, I'll, I'll follow you, and Rehoboam does the thing that they all seems like they end up doing. But anyways, this is a really, really important thing, is this idea that politically I'll do this because it looks like it's expedient, and I will put religion as a veneer over it. It's so baffling to me that Jeroboam would do this, because it sounded to me like God had come to him personally, talked okay. to him, told him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the kingdom. And he turns, I mean, it's like it's, it seems, as we're reading it, it just sounds like he immediately goes to this. And it's yeah. so, that's just baffling to me. How do you... How do you talk? Have how do you have God talk to you personally, and then immediately do a one eighty like that? It's just it's baffling to me. I don't I don't I can't say I understand it. I don't even begin but, to understand it. But it happens, and it's to what yeah. we. I think Karen posed this question at the very very beginning. What is it that that drives us into sin, or what keeps us in sin? What's the root of sin? And it's self. And Jeroboam had self at the center, and for him it was politics. For Solomon, you know, it was women and wealth. And different people have different buttons that they get pushed. We, we see no, I don't recall anything here about Jeroboam. He married a few women, but it didn't seem like that was his thing. That wasn't his cup of tea, right? Yeah. But politics was. And God sent somebody specifically to Jeroboam. This is a really fascinating story. And for those of you who are following along, we're we're doing First Kings ten to fourteen, which is pretty much a traced copy of Second Chronicles nine to twelve. Mm -hmm. They are essentially one and the same story. There's a few different words and a few different details in in one that's maybe not in the other, but they pretty much overlap. And Jeroboam is here. He's doing kind of the uh, initiation of one of these uh, altars. And he's getting ready to do a sacrifice himself, which we know that's not a thing that God said to do. It's like, that's the Levites get to do this. So here's Jeroboam. He's standing in front of this altar, and a man of God shows up and prophesies against the altar itself. It's a crazy story. First um, Kings 13, he says... He, he says some pretty shocking things. Behold, a son will be, horn, will be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. He names him. And shall sacrifice on you, the priests, and high place, the priests of the high places, and make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign 
the same day. This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. This is, the thing's going to crack open right now and spill out the ashes that are in it. Jeroboam reaches out his hand to basically do the common uh, movie line, don't let him get away. And <laughs> his arm freezes in place. It shrivels up. He can't he can't withdraw his arm. It just like freezes in place and becomes useless. Instantaneously, he's like, okay, 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 okay. Sorry, 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 uncle. Um, pray to God that my arm will be okay. And the, the prophet does. His arm is healed. Jeroboam says, hey, wow, that was close. Um, hey, why don't you come back to my house and have uh, refresh yourself, as he says. Have a meal with me. And the prophet says something really interesting. He says, there's no way I'm going home with you because God specifically told me not to stay, not to eat or drink anything here, not even to go back the way that I came. I know my instructions exactly. And he leaves the King Jeroboam. Somebody else can pick up the story because it gets even more interesting. <laughs> yeah, so this uh, he, he, he refuses the, the meal. And he's headed on his way home. But then this other, this says this old prophet in Bethel learns what's happened. And so he goes after him and invites, invites him back to his house. And here's where we have to, <laughs> we have to differentiate between prophet and man of God. Because they're kind of listed as different char as characters here. And these are the only names we're really given. We're given old prophet and man of God. So this old prophet goes to the man of God and says, come to my house and, and have a meal. And the man of God refuses it because, as Eric pointed out, God had told him, "Do not do it." But then this old prophet, he, boy, he plays a he plays a weird card here, and I, I don't really know why he does this. In but 18, he lies. Hmm? Yeah. In in verse eighteen, I too am a man of God. Yeah. It's like, does that change your instructions? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but he he, he lies and tells him. That an angel sent him to call him back. He's like, no, I, I, okay, so yeah, you're a man of God, but I'm a prophet too. And an angel came to me and said, no, it's okay for you. It, it's okay. Come back to my house and, and rest and have something to eat. And the man of God decides to go back with him. I guess he believes him, yeah. uh, you know, he and decides to go back. But then... He gets told uh, by God, he says, because he disobeyed, he says, uh, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. This, I, this, I think this is when he's on his way home after stopping uh, to have this meal. And he gets killed by a lion on the road, on the road home. And in a really weird turn, the lion doesn't eat him. It doesn't eat the donkey he's riding on. It just stands there by the body. And people see this thing, and the old prophet, he hears what's happened. He goes, and he retrieves the body and buries him in his own tomb. So that pro that prophecy comes forward. He doesn't get buried with his in his family tomb. He gets buried in this old prophet's tomb far away from his home. And the old prophet, he asks his son to bury him next to the man of God when he dies. There's, it's just such a weird story because it feels like there's respect coming from this old prophet, but at the same time, he he lied to this guy to get him to come to his house. I, I, I can't say I even begin to really understand what or why is happening here. 
Yeah, and I kind of had the same thought. And and honestly, I've had these same questions come up in my mind every time I've read this story over the years. And and I guess I guess one of the questions is this old prophet who came and spoke to him, was he ill-intentioned? It doesn't matter. He 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 lied. Okay. Look, yes, I'm gonna say yes, because yeah. he lied. Yeah. How can but, you have good intention and come up with what you know is a lie? God spoke to me, do X, and you know it's a lie. How can that be a good intention? I think did he say God or did he say an or, angel? He said an angel, but I think Karen was trying to get a point across yeah. here. Sorry. But what if that was so, Satan? So, Karen, go. So, so, from, so there's a couple different angles here, and they apply to us now. Because we see, I, I think that our world is complex and it's about to get more complex. And these are some of the things that I see happening. If we read the book of Revelation, there will be spirits, supernatural powers, divine messengers, quote unquote, who are directing humans and humans are going to follow them. Yep. And... When I think of this old story, I see a small version of that. I see, you know, why did this old prophet seek this other person out? Was he, he knew he was going against God's commands. Was he doing it to see the other person harmed? And that's what I mean by ill-intentioned. Like, did he, did he fail to see the fallout of disobeying God because he seems remorseful. Like it's, he buries him in his, on his own land and he mourns him and calls him his brother and wants to be buried next to, you know, like there, there seems to be remorse here. So what were his, his intentions? That's one thing, because if we're going to be consumers of spiritual deceit coming at us, we need to be able to think that through because not everybody that comes to us with wrong information will be ill-intentioned. That does not stop our duty to, as the Bible puts it, test the spirits. So, so now the prophet that went to see the king, his job was clear. His role was clear. His duty was clear. The way to do his duty was clear. And yet when another man of God came and said, well, I too am a prophet. And so I'm inviting you to my house. Like the king had already invited him to his house. And he said flat out, no. But when a man of God came and invited him, he let down his guard and he trusted him. And he stepped away from what he knew God's instructions were. He let down his discernment because he trusted a, a fellow servant of God. And I just think there's so much warning in that for us now. Yeah, I think us being able to parse out what somebody else's intentions are is, to Karen's point, not relevant. In the sense that if we are told specifically, you do this, you don't do this, if somebody shows up and says, well, hey, I got this other information for you. If it goes specifically against what God has explicitly told us to do, it's not God. Okay? Because here's, imagine this. Jeroboam just received a prophecy. And there's two parts in this thing. He said, I have been told by God, this is what's going to happen in the future. Okay, Jeroboam gets this. And Jeroboam says, well, okay, so you healed me. Come with me. And the guy says, no, this is something else that God told me. I'm not supposed to do this. Now, if, if, this old, if the young prophet 
had gone back with the old prophet and disobeyed God and nothing had happened to him, that message to Jeroboam, it would have been pretty easy for Jeroboam to say, well, I mean, God told him two parts. He said, you know, this future thing is going to happen and to knock off this idol worship. And he told him not to stay because that was a, a big no-no. But he did the big no-no and it worked out okay for him. I guess I can keep doing what I want to do. God was like, no, I meant both things, no exceptions. And the message, which is sad because it says this in 1 Kings 13, 33, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. It's like, okay, at this point, Jeroboam, dude, you have, you've had your grace. You have no excuse. This is a thing that's spoken of. Karen's mentioned in the future. It's not the only place this idea that, well, God said to me this. We've been told in a number of other places how to deal with it. Here's a few other verses. Uh, Galatians 1, 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Uh, that's fairly fairly straight. Another one, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Because this idea that there's just, or 13 and 14, this idea that, well, any, anybody who had a vision obviously got it from God. Not really. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 and 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, even Satan himself disgu disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So this idea that everybody is going to just be like, well, shoot, as long as they stay up, and if they say they're a prophet, they must be. Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus, the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of God. And this is, I mean, this goes back and predates this whole thing. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's New Testament. They were warned of that, but they weren't before. Yeah, they were. Deuteronomy 13, 1. If a prophet or dreamer dreams arise among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, not just if it doesn't, but if it does. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not. Listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So God has given this some pretty explicit, like, do this, do not do this. And this idea that they were to worship other gods was out of bounds, clearly out of bounds. And this young prophet, this story, this story's bothered me for a long time, too. And I guess it, it's, I struggle with a lot of the things Karen was mentioning too. Like, what's, who is this old prophet and did he really get a vision and what was going? Ultimately, that doesn't matter where that came from or what this guy's motivations were. The fact is, the prophet of God from Judah was given clear marching orders. Anything other than that, anything other than that, regardless of the source, he was not to do. And I think there are some things that we are given to say, we are, you're not to go there. And it's to us to either, you know, obey or disobey. And in this case, we see the word disobey show up a few times. This reminds me of um, John 10, 27, where Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Yeah. So 
in order to have this discernment, we have to know the difference between God's voice and all of the other voices. Yeah. And to be perfectly blunt about it, there's a lot of other voices. There are well-intentioned other voices. There are ill-intentioned other voices. There's just noise. There's people's thoughts and opinions. And there's actual, you know, guidance out there. And then there's guidance meant to steer you astray. And unless you know, unless you know, you're not going to know the difference. The sheep hear his voice. Sheep aren't smart. It's this is not a flattering comparison. It's all the way through the Bible. You know, I think of goats as kind of canny and intelligent. They're also defiant and stubborn and they'll eat anything and they're get out of any pen if they can and just go their own way. So when 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 Jesus calls his people sheep from a human standpoint, that's not terribly flattering, but if you think of the world as so complex that it is literally beyond our reach to understand it, then all we need to know is the shepherd's voice. And the rest of it, we can just be like, okay, I don't know if that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I don't know if that's a wolf. I don't know if that's a sheep that belongs, that it voluntarily belongs to a different shepherd. Oh, I know that voice. That's my shepherd. I'm going there. Right. Yeah. And and can we discern that through the noise of the world? Yeah. Yeah. You talk about cheap being stupid. I think last week, week before, I had shared a video on Facebook just on my personal page. Of, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I died laughing. There's a sheep. He's stuck in this. I don't oh. even know how this crack. But there's this crack in the in, in the ground. And the crack is probably, I don't know, a foot and a half, two feet wide. I don't know how deep this thing is. <laughs> but a guy. Yeah, it's like a trench, but it's, you know, it's yeah. it's not something that somebody dug. It's, it's just, it's opened up somehow. But at any rate, there's a guy pulling this sheep out by its hind legs. He get, And it's quite a struggle. And he gets the sheep pulled out and set to the side. And the sheep takes off running like you would expect a sheep to do. And he bounces and he immediately jumps right back into the crack <laughs> he just got pulled out of. It is, it is so hilarious. And... When you see it and you think of it in the context of we what we talk about with 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 us being sheep in the Bible, you're like, yep, that's us, that's us, one hundred percent. And it, it it is, it was very funny. If I if I remember, I'll try to put that up on the uh, oh, on the yes, podcast website. Do. Oh, that thing is gold. It was so funny. So I was funny. laughing so hard I was crying watching it. I was like, that's the story of my life right there. How can it be so true and so embarrassing? Yeah. <laughs> I heard a story. It was in a sermon once uh, where this, this this pastor, he was talking about how how we are God's, you know, we are God's sheep. He is our shepherd, right? And then he, st- he starts off his sermon with a bunch of stories about how unflattering that is mm-hmm. and one of them was this this uh this herd of sheep over in europe that something startled it and startled startled the herd and they ran off the nearest the nearest cliff and the fur there were like 1500 sheep and like the first five or six hundred died when they hit the bottom and then the other you know few the other 14 1500 bounced like they they ran off the same cliff and they bounced off of their dead comrades 
and 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 lived to tell the tale and just sort of stood there stupidly at the bottom of the cliff. He's like, no, this is not flattering people. But do you know the shepherd's voice? Do right. you know the shepherd's? Mm. <laughs> well, Jeroboam, after being <laughs> figuratively pulled out of the trench in the ground, <laughs> he immediately goes back to his idolatry and disobedience. This guy, it's like when I'm reading this, I'm going, what is with this guy? chosen specifically by god to to rule egypt but immediately creates uh i said egypt israel (laughs) (laughs) i I caught myself on that one thank you very much chosen by god to rule israel creates a new just just out of thin air practically a new religion it has me thinking kind of scientology it's like what in the world but that's a whole other can of worms there Gets a sign right in his face. The 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 altar splits right in front of him. His own arm withers up. He gets it healed on the spot, and he turns right around and goes right back into his idolatry and disobedience. And you're just you're just going, what? How thick is your head, man? What is going on with you? Baffling to me. Absolutely baffling to me. Then as we get into, uh, let's see, do we want to go there yet? I think so, yeah. If we get into Kings, 1 Kings chapter 14, Jeroboam's son becomes sick. Now, he has a son named Abijah, and I got a little confused in this because Rehoboam also ends up having a son named Abijah. So there's two different Abijahs that are going to be going on here. But his son, Jeroboam's son, Abijah, becomes sick. And I sort of had a question there. Is this because of Jeroboam's sin? I don't know if that is specifically spelled out, but um, but this son becomes sick. And Jeroboam sends his wife in disguise to Shiloh to see Ahijah, who is the prophet that told Jeroboam that he would be the king. Now, interestingly, Ahijah is blind, so he wouldn't be able to see who this is coming anyway. But God tells him that Jeroboam's wife is on her way. And it's a it's sort of a fun little little um, interaction there as she comes in and and he the high just kind of like, yeah, I'm blind, but I can see through your disguise. I know exactly who you are. But God gives Jeroboam a message through Ahijah. It says, I took the kingdom away from the house of David to give it to you. And you went off making other gods. And it says you cast me behind your back. So now there's going to be disaster on the house of Jeroboam. Israel is going to get cut off from him. It says, only Abijah, your son, will actually go to the grave. Now that is a daunting statement when you think about what it means. Because it talks about how people are going to be eaten by dogs and, and all kinds of horrible things. But Abijah is the only one who's actually going to get buried and have a normal funeral. I don't know if you want to call it that. Yeah. And this is a big deal in this culture, this, this honor, to be honored with where you're buried. Think about it. Everybody, we talk about where they're buried. Joseph, carry my bones out. You know, this prophet we just read about, this old guy is like, well, make sure you bury me next to the other prophet. Like, this was a really big deal, where you get buried. And so mm-hmm. this prophecy had more weight and significance in their culture than it probably does to us. Mm-hmm. And then something gets told to to the wife. We don't get her name. She's just a, a she's just Jeroboam's wife. But she, she, sorry, Karen. <laughs> the <suck> from here. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> she's told that Abijah will die as soon as she returns to the city. How's that going to make her feel? You know, would, wouldn't it make you kind of like reluctant to go back? I don't know. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. It's a but, judgment. Uh, it's a judgment. But this is the this is the thing. We can wring our hands about it, but they are, as Matt said, doing exactly what they have been told exactly not to do. Hmm? And somehow they've justified this. H- how? I don't know. I can't get my head around it either. Yeah. But somehow they've justified it and they continually do it. And even in spite of this. And his prophecy comes true. I believe the last of his line was actually um, Jezebel. And we see how her story ends and how she's not uh, buried. It's, oh, it's, it's pretty graphic. This is an interesting thing is this child does, in fact, die when she um, enters the city. But here's an interesting line in, in the text. It's First uh, Kings 14, 13. God says he's going to get buried, this son of yours. Because in him, there is something pleasing to the Lord. In other words, he is going to allow him to die because he's the best one you've got. Think about the irony of that, is that the best thing for this kid is for him to die young. Yeah. And he gets buried and he's spared from all of this horrible disaster that's going to show up in the future. It points out to me, anyways, in this little reading, is we don't know what's best. We think, oh, it'd be so much better if, it's like, do we? Do we really know what's better? Mm-hmm. Th- that brings to mind a quick little story I'll share here. My, It was just recently the one-year anniversary of my mother-in-law's passing. And my wife had been talking with her dad uh, about that. And... He was lamenting, you know, she was so young when she died. You know, she, I mean, 70, 71, I don't, I don't know exactly how old she was. But yeah, that's kind of young to, to, to die. And, uh, but, you know, he's, he's upset by this. And Shannon stops for a moment and she says, you know, things happen for a reason. And maybe this was the best thing for her. Because you think of everything that happened over the past year. And if you know my, my mother-in-law, she was a, an extremely conservative woman politically and, and uh, uh, socially. She was not one who dealt with big changes easily. So all of this, all of this stuff that the world has been going through over the last year, year and a half, would have been extremely hard on her. It would have been just, we would have seen her probably, uh, it would have been questionable how well she would have been able to handle it all, you know? And so if you look at it from that perspective, it's like, well, maybe she was spared from having to go through all of that, you know? So like you're saying, Eric, we don't always know what's best. We don't always know, you know, why some of these things happen. And so, yeah, for you, this guy, the best thing for this for this I'll say kid I don't know that he was a kid it sounds like yeah, maybe we don't he was know. an adult but um maybe adult but, we don't know but yeah think. so the but maybe the best thing for this guy before he gets corrupted and and brought down the tubes too maybe the best thing is for him to is for him to be allowed to die you know and and be spared all of that it's uh it is an interesting it's it's an interesting way to try to perceive the world and and because we always try to, we always want to try to preserve 
the things that we think we value. And sometimes it's, it's to a fault. We try so hard to preserve things. Yeah. Sometimes those things are holding us back. And yeah. sometimes, and sometimes what we're trying to uh, preserve just isn't going to work with what, what's happening with what's that, going on around us. You know, I think that's, that was the key here too, because I look at his 22 years and two, when you look at falls of kingdoms, it usually doesn't happen. You usually don't go from the top tier to the bottom in a day. Very rare. Mm-hmm. You have that slide. And this is this is when you look at it, just call it, you know, from King Solomon, he had 40 years. There was there was the pentacle to that, and then it becomes a slow slide. And I think that's what we're seeing right now, is we're seeing that, you know, we were going back and it's like, how does he get told something and then doesn't do it. And I think it's the allure of the world that there was still riches there. He was still a king. He still ruled people, but it was on that slow slide. And that's that preservation of, I think I have some power still, so I'm going to do what I want. And this is where it gets you. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what rolls this story forward is that God, we see this is, this is basically the story of the rest of the old Testament is God reaching out to these people to say, look, my priority is your heart. Their priority might be their kingdom. And God is like, look, I'll do whatever it takes to get your attention. And we see this happen over and over. And here's one of the first times we see this motif show up is that Rehoboam is thinking he's like, he's got stuff pretty good. He's got at least two kingdoms, two tribes, and they're they're very um, wealthy ones. Remember, they had 180,000 soldiers who were going to go to war against the northern kingdom so it's not a small group of people he's got and god says hey no this is not okay uh second chronicles 12 when the first verse when the rule of rehoboam was established and he was strong he abandoned the law of the lord kind of like his dad it's like when everything was going great he said yeah okay god thanks thanks very much but looks like i got this now is that god raises up adversaries for him, and here comes the uh, the Egyptians, and they've got twelve hundred chariots and sixty thousand horsemen. I think earlier somebody they, he was a tough guy because he had twelve thousand horsemen. Here comes sixty thousand, and it's just they can't even get their head around how many people this is, and the kingdom starts to fall because God's concern is not their wealth. This I know comes as a shock to a lot of modern evangelicals, but. God is way more concerned with their heart than their wealth. And if it takes sacrificing their wealth to get their attention, he'll do it. And Shishak of Egypt shows up and basically takes everything. He's like, well, I might not kill you, but I'm going to take all your gold. All those wonderful shields we heard read about earlier that were made of gold and so on. Shishak takes them all. And then Rehoboam's like, "Mm, okay, well, I'll make brass ones or bronze i think it was bronze Bronze. so the story is is that they lose their wealth this national wealth gets totally raided and this is for the purpose of refocusing them spiritually you're pronouncing his name shy shack i was thinking she shack which made me wonder you know i was thinking (laughs) cheryl's Cheryl's trust me i know <laughs> the first thing I'm reading when I'm thinking when I'm here, it was I hear she shack and I'm thinking she shed and I'm like somebody burned down Cheryl's she shed. Anyway, sorry, squirrel. 
Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> way to go, Matt. Way to <laughs> derail everything. Um, so, yeah, we're told, part let's see. Part of the outtakes. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll leave it right in there. <laughs> leave it in. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so we're told that Jeroboam dies. He had reigned for 22 years. He's succeeded by his son, Nadab. Rehoboam, we're told he reigned for 41, or no, he was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years. Now, interestingly here, his mother, I believe her name is Naamah, she's, it's pointed out that she was an Ammonitess. And so I'm wondering if this has some significance. I think it probably does, because it seems like a lot of times when, it seems like a lot of times the mothers get credited as we go forward with with um, what's what's going on with these kings, and it's sometimes when it's good and sometimes when it's bad, but it's very interesting that their mothers get uh, get named here in a culture where we've already noted even in this podcast that the women you know the women don't always get named; they're not always considered all that significant. You know, we just had Jeroboam's wife with no name, but now we have Rehoboam's mother, Naamah an Ammonitess. And so I'm wondering if this had something to do with Rehoboam's um, falling away from God. It could, you know. Uh, Judah, they're the building hand, high places. The hand mm-hmm. that rocks the cradle, as they say. Yeah. Well, so so we've got Judah, who's been preserved to to be this place for, for worship and sacrifice and whatnot. But they start going into... All of this idolatry, building high places, sacred pillars, wooden images. This says uh, in verse 24, this is in 1 Kings 14, it says perverted persons. And that's not my saying. That's what the Bible puts it. Perverted persons did all the abominations of the, na- of the nations who had been driven out by Israel. So they were just turning right back to all the, all the stuff that they had driven out. And uh, yeah, and then so this Egyptian king, Shishak or Shishak, I think. Eric might be right. I don't know, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not but, an Egyptologist. <laughs> but he comes in and he he you know, kind of makes a mess of things for them. And we do get told in Second Chronicles chapter 12 that Rehoboam and the leaders humble themselves to God, and God relents from letting them be completely destroyed. But they are going to be the servants. To to this Egyptian king, and uh, I mean that's kind of that's kind of where where it leaves off is that we've got the kingdom split. Neither parts of the kingdom are doing anything good. Not really. They're 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 both behaving badly. And, and the money's gone. Yeah, and the money's gone. And this is, you know, we we're talking about how this is three kingdom or three kings in. Well, this is only one king after Solomon had built up all that wealth, and poof. <laughs> 22 years. Yeah, there it goes. And it, it, everything, everything has fallen apart. The wealth is gone. The, the, all that integrity that they had is just, it's just you know, shot. But I looked at this, too, and I think sometimes we do this to make ourselves feel better. So the, the king or the pharaoh of Egypt, king of Egypt, comes in ransacks the place he has to give up one of those let's just call it a national treasure because it was it was mentioned before these were literally gold shields and you usually don't make shields out of gold for what reason because it's it's a soft metal 
you don't do it. It's not that well for battle. It doesn't hold up. So it was more for just the look of it. So what happens is he gets those taken away. So in his mind, what does he do? He goes down to the next metal that he could possibly do and make them out of bronze. What did he need to do that for? As an outward well, display of maybe there was still something there that he still held something, you know, that the the nation still wasn't at the, you know, at their lowest point or hadn't hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. But why? Why do you need that outward expression still? Yeah, yeah I, I actually wondered that because, you know, it talks about him being guarded every time he goes there. But he's guarded with those ceremonial shields like right. like the guards would have normal shields. Come on. You know, right. So it's like, well, if I can't do them in gold, then I'm just going to go ahead and do them in bronze and give the same kind of outward appearance. Well, no, that outward appearance is what got you in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Bronze, bronze does still kind of have yeah, some of that. Good enough. It could similar from far away. It could look a little golden. Similar look, and it gets me thinking. It gets me thinking of in Daniel when uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the the dream of the statue, and you have the head of gold. And it's, you know, that's kind of like the pinnacle, like this is a, this is like the, the pinnacle of, of civilization of what, what's being displayed there. But then the next thing is clearly lesser, but it's bronze. It, it, it still looks nice, but it's, it's definitely inferior, inferior for different purposes. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is kind of odd that, that, that this is still... This is still like this show. This is this display. We're still going to do this. And I also found it interesting that these bronze shields now are are put in the care of the guards. Where it's like before, it seems like the gold ones weren't being maybe guarded as well. Because now these these bronze shields aren't just left laying or not left laying around. It's not like they used to be, you know, like hanging on the walls or something. But now the guards take them home with them. Because literally, that's all they have left. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we've seen quite the fall very quickly when people start falling away from from God, and it we can't lay it all on Rehoboam because it started going bad under Solomon. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is Solomon. This is the guy who was le- you know labeled as being the wisest man who ever lived, and he let his guard down, and things went bad. Well, we yeah, read Ecclesiastes, so we kind of we kind of know how dismal he got internally when he when he did let his guard down, and we, there was a lot of sort of grim cynicism going on in Ecclesiastes before he found some kind of an even keel. Well, and that's kind of where we're going to leave off for this week with uh, with 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 the the nation of Israel and basically a shambles. It's not our fault, folks. We just read it. We're we're just reporting the news. We don't make the news. Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) Uh, But next week, as I was looking forward, I think what we will do is we will look at 1 Kings chapter 15 and 2 Chronicles chapters 13 through 16. Now, we will evaluate this amongst the four of us as we go forward because I'm just glancing through it. And it looks like it uh, is kind of a progression through several kings over the next few generations there. And that, that's going to give us a bit to read there and follow, see what uh, see what's happening. So that's what we will be looking at. First Kings chapter 15, Second Chronicles 13 through 16, unless we decide to go further. But uh, that uh, will be what you should be looking forward to next week. And while you are waiting for that, 
Remember that you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org. Look for us on Facebook and be sure you share the podcast with your friends and family and neighbors so that this message can get out to them. And make sure that you subscribe so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.